most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, June 1st, 2022, the 497th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. And let's go ahead and get immediately just right into it today. So yesterday we were talking about the verdict of the Michael Sussman trial in John Durham's special counsel investigation. He was prosecuting Michael Sussman for lying to the FBI. And the evidence clearly shows that he did lie to the FBI. And the decision by the jury to find him not guilty was met with obvious disappointment and also a pretty clear understanding that a conviction would have been really difficult under the circumstances. The jury had multiple Clinton donors. The judge, Christopher Cooper, is married to a woman named Amy Jeffress, who is a lawyer for Lisa Page. And Lisa Page is one of the people Trump often refers to as the two lovers, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. So she's implicated in this whole scenario. And her attorney's husband was the judge presiding over the Sussman case. And so it's absolutely reasonable to conclude that the D.C. swamp had a hand in the outcome of this trial. And of course, there are a lot of people that have a lot of faith in John Durham and this special counsel process. And they have a lot of faith that John Durham is going to get to the end of this process and prosecute the entirety of what he calls a joint venture conspiracy. But part of that faith was in the idea that people like Michael Sussman would be consistently found guilty. Sussman would be found guilty. Danchenko in the fall, guilty. There are supposedly more indictments on the way this summer. I believe Cash Patel has said two to four indictments coming this summer. And we would assume that those would be prosecuted to guilty verdicts. And so coming out of the gates with a loss in the Sussman case was hugely disappointing. It is not by any standard justice in most people's eyes and in mine as well. And quite a few people have taken this to mean that Durham is over. Durham is ineffective. And then there is a case that the Durham special counsel, the appointment by Bill Barr, the results that we can see the time it has taken to achieve these mixed results all point to the idea that the Durham investigation, the special counsel investigation is a cover up. It's a mop up job. They're just cleaning up after the fact, getting enough out there for the accusers side to be satisfied in some way that they were right, even though they didn't actually get the convictions and that the investigation would yield nothing more than some low-level indictments, some minor convictions here and there, like we saw with Kevin Kleinsmith, and that this was, like many other things, something that people got their hopes up for and got distracted by that was ultimately going to come to nothing. It's a wild goose chase. It is the system enforcing its will on the people and showing them that not only 
can justice be denied, but your hope for eventual justice can also be denied as well. And there is some rationality to this view, right? It is defensible. You can make an argument for that position that people cannot fully dismiss. It is a valid position. And the only thing that can invalidate it is eventual results that show justice is being served. And there's obviously no way to prove something like that right now. You can do all of the research on the case and what Durham is going after, the process by which Durham was named special counsel. You can know all of these things, all of the relevant facts that you might need to draw a conclusion. But the problem is that that conclusion is unfalsifiable until the future because the Durham investigation is still going on and like I said, we have the Igor Danchenko trial that starts in October. So we know that's going to happen. You can't just close the book on the whole story right now. Because while there is a defensible argument on that side, it is not a conclusive argument. At least not yet. Someday it might be conclusive and the people who have taken that position might be proven right for the entire time they would have called that correctly from the beginning. And their skepticism about the process and the general pessimistic outlook would then be justified. And all of that is fine. That is a possible outcome. And I'm not saying that the people who hold that position are uninformed or misinformed or even wrong. I can't prove that. But the future might prove them wrong. And we know how that might happen. And it's also an important factor to note that while Sussman was found not guilty by the jury, a lot of things came out in that trial that are now entered into evidence, which has already been vetted. Robbie Mook said in federal court that Hillary Clinton was aware and gave her approval to the information about the Alpha Bank Trump-Russia collusion hoax being delivered to the media. Hillary Clinton, for the entire time, knew that none of that information was real or true. All of it was a setup. And now, through the course of this trial, we have her 2016 campaign manager admitting to exactly that. That is now a part of the record, and I would imagine that as we see indictments come down throughout the summer, we are going to see those indictments include information that was entered into evidence throughout this trial, which would mean that this trial, despite the outcome, would still be used as a building block in pursuit of the larger joint venture conspiracy. And that's a testable claim. Let's say we see one, two, three, four indictments throughout this summer over the course of the next three or four months. If those indictments include information that came out of this Sussman trial, then the Sussman trial matters despite the outcome. And that would constitute evidence that people who still believe in the John Durham special counsel project would have a point in favor of their argument. And likewise, if that doesn't happen and in the fall, the Danchenko trial comes up with nothing then those are clear points for the argument of the doubters. And there are a lot of parallels to this kind of thinking and this kind of scenario. You know, we can look at election fraud and many of us knew immediately that the outcome was a complete and total sham in November 2020. Some people had that realization. They threw up their hands. They said, there's nothing we can do. And they moved on with their lives. Other people denied it completely, refused to look at any of the evidence and went out cheering for Joe Biden because finally the orange man was gone. That didn't work out very well. And then we had the hearings with Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis going around the country, presenting the facts and 
the evidence that they have, the affidavits from thousands of American citizens who themselves witnessed election fraud. They presented all of that to different state legislatures around the country. And if you were paying attention, you saw conclusive evidence that the election was illegally held, if not completely fraudulently stolen with all the facts behind it. It was clear that election law was not followed again and again and again in a way that could only be coordinated. But the court cases, many of them were dismissed. The media discussed the big lie. No one was allowed to talk about election fraud. States that held clearly illegal elections chose their slate of electors that they were going to send. You might remember in Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer having the state house locked down so that an alternate slate of electors for Michigan could not be considered. And then the House and the Senate and Mike Pence all gave their stamp of approval to an obviously fraudulent election. And then a couple weeks later, Joe Biden was fake inaugurated at an obviously fake inauguration that didn't start on time. Almost no one attended. No one even showed up in Washington, D.C. to celebrate. And then the National Guard troops turned their backs to their new president. And we've just gone on and on and on being told that everything is the big lie, having the audit slowed or stopped, being lied to about hand recounts and logic and accuracy tests and machine audits. And everything has been delayed. There's lawfare all over the place. They've gone after whistleblowers, people like Tina Peters in Colorado. And to this point, All of those people who said there was either no election fraud or that even if there was, it wouldn't have flipped the election or that even if it was and it would have flipped the election, nothing could be done. All of them still get to maintain their position because the thing that makes their position falsifiable has not happened yet. And the longer it goes on without happening, they believe that is more evidence that they were right from the beginning. The problem is that their claim from the beginning already assumes their conclusions about what's going to happen. If you believe that nothing can happen, nothing can be done about the stolen election or about the Trump-Russia collusion hoax or the fake impeachments or... January 6th. Well, you have an entirely defensible position at this point in time. But this isn't the only point in time. There is a future progressing and it is progressing toward the solution to these problems. It is progressing toward the awakening. And when the awakening happens, problems like this become easier to solve because people have to do it out in public. The public actually sees what's going on. Despite the outcome of the Sussman trial, The information is now out there. CNN had to report that Hillary Clinton knew about the Russia hoax and gave her blessing to the Russia hoax. That is significant narrative progress in our direction, despite the minor setback, if you choose to view it that way, of the not guilty verdict for Sussman. But somehow we are expected to believe that the not guilty verdict is real and substantial in a way that the narrative advancement is not. But the truth is they're both real and the narrative advancement probably pays off a lot bigger than a guilty verdict for Michael Sussman. And if that's true, and we may well see that it is. And I just talked about one of the ways we might know that the narrative advancement actually was the significant part. If the evidence is used from the Sussman trial in future indictments or used in the Danchenko trial, then this was a net positive relative to the overall goal. And the overall goal, again, is prosecuting the joint venture conspiracy. And I gave the parallel to the election fraud scenario and how that hasn't completely developed yet. So the doubters for now 
still have their position where they can say real world events have not proven me wrong yet, right? That is a defensible position. I don't think it's an advisable position. It's not the position I hold, but it is a defensible position. And that position comes preloaded advantageous position from an argumentation perspective that their position cannot be proven wrong by what we know right now. And I would say that I believe that position and that argument in particular, that style of argument, I can't be proven wrong based on what you can prove about material reality right now. That is an entirely materialist position. And the structure of that argument is very much like one of the atheistic arguments against the existence of God. You cannot prove to me based on what's in reality that God exists. Therefore, God does not until I am proven wrong. And that is an argument I used to subscribe to. And it is a powerful argument. As long as all that's allowed to enter into the argument is what we know about material reality right now. And just like the structure of that argument exists for the Sussman thing, the same way it does for election fraud, it also exists for prior points in the Durham investigation. Durham prosecuted Kevin Kleinsmith for forging an email. Kleinsmith was found guilty, and then he was let off with a slap on the wrist. At that point, everyone who is a Durham skeptic could have made the exact same argument on the exact same grounds, and they would have been right in exactly the same way. And by right, I mean right in a way that cannot be immediately refuted with evidence from our current material reality. And as I said, this is a very powerful position to argue from, particularly in a society, in a culture that rewards only arguments made from material reality. And this is part of the effect of scientism on our culture. Now, don't get me wrong. That is a very practical perspective. And it's often a very effective perspective, but it's not a sufficient perspective when you're trying to make crucial life decisions or judgments about things that really matter. The argument that nothing has happened, therefore nothing will happen, is not actually the coherent, conclusive notion that people believe it to be. We have seen all sorts of disruptions in the pattern of how American life and American culture and American politics were progressing. Donald Trump's four years in office, and I would argue the year and a half before he was elected and the year and a half since the stolen election of 2020 was a perpetual disruption in the pattern we saw before. And I think there's overwhelming evidence to suggest that he has disrupted that pattern in a way that makes that pattern irrecoverable for the people whose agenda that pattern was conforming to. So I think to assume that because Durham hasn't brought down the entire diseased temple by this point, that nothing's happening. And that's kind of the soft version of the argument. The harder version of it is that nothing has happened. Durham hasn't brought down the whole disease temple yet, so he won't. And that beyond that, Durham is actually part of a cover-up mop-up operation for the whole Russian collusion hoax. And I don't think that there's any conclusive argument for that. There are powerful arguments. There are defensible arguments, but they're not conclusive. Okay, and so when the argument is not conclusive, the advisable position, as far as I'm concerned, is to stay open to multiple possibilities because we don't know the future and predicting the future during this massive disruption in normal patterns is often a losing game, which does not mean 
It's not worth looking at the future and talking about the future and considering all those possible future options, because once you've considered the possibilities, you'll be able to identify when there is more support for each one of those possibilities. And as those possibilities grow into more and more likely probabilities, our forward thinking is what allows us to prepare for those potential outcomes. But then there's one step beyond that. It's that nothing has happened so far. Therefore, nothing will. Therefore, this whole thing is a cover up. Therefore, you are crazy or uninformed or creating false hope by, quote unquote, refusing to accept what's happened. Now, again, I would have rather seen Michael Sussman found guilty, obviously. And I think that the doubters and skeptics have a defensible argument. But that said, I don't think it is spreading false hope or it's hopium, as the kids say, to consider that this isn't the grand disappointment it's being painted as. And we can look to people like Cash Patel, like Devin Nunes, when they come out and say what I imagined they would say in the podcast yesterday, that this is all about the higher goal. This is about the joint venture conspiracy. This is not about whether or not a D.C. jury with a D.C. judge renders a guilty verdict against Michael Sussman. And because the skeptical argument is defensible but not conclusive, the hopium claim is inaccurate. There are actual grounded real world reasons to continue to take an optimistic outlook on the Durham investigation. And of course, on everything else, I don't think in any way that I am a spreader of false hope or hopium, but I'm sure some people might think that I'm sure people think it's crazy that I say Joe Biden's not really president and that he never will be. I base that on the fact that he's entirely illegitimate. He was illegally elected. He, in fact, he was not elected. They just made up a result and told it to everybody. He was illegally certified and he was illegally inaugurated. All of that was based on systemic intentional fraud aided by foreign countries and foreign actors. And every bit of that is grounded in pure material reality that anyone can look at. And people are welcome to draw their own conclusions. People might think that the way I talk about that is too certain or too hyperbolic. But I don't think that that's the truth. The truth is Joe Biden did not get 81 million real legal American votes. The truth is the people in office who are making these decisions to certify, to accept the electors. Most of them are no more legitimate than Joe Biden is. They know that election fraud takes place in their localities, in their states, and certainly around the country. And they knew what they were doing when they certified a fraudulent election. The entire process is beset with fraud, all dependent on that underlying fraud. And regardless of whether or not that has been proven sufficiently for the TV news to tell all the child brains and the Biden voters out there that they've been wrong the whole time, and whether or not the courts and the legislatures have rectified the situation to this point, the underlying claim is still true. Joe Biden is not a legitimate president. If you're not a legitimate president, then you're not president. And the timeline along which that becomes the accepted and default position doesn't matter at all to me. It is true. It is provably true. And it has been proven true. And in the meantime, the claims from the other side have consistently proven to be false again and again and again and again. In every case, a superficial view, a surface level view of the material reality seems like a defensible position, but it really isn't one because the position being defended is that a lie will not be found out by enough people for the situation to be resolved properly. 
And though the material reality that they are depending on to make their claims remains in some sense stable from a superficial view underneath that, the material reality is not at all stable. Things are happening within that material reality. And the narrative is advancing continually forward in our direction. So it's not a false hope. It's not hopium to remain optimistic about where things are going, despite the speed bumps. The speed bumps and disappointments are a natural part of life. We have to deal with those and continue on forward. If your optimism fades because we get a not guilty verdict for a Clinton campaign lawyer while having gotten all of the other evidence from that trial, then what is the future you are looking toward? Okay, I would suggest to everybody that we really don't have an option here. We know what it is we're up against. We know what is going on with the global communist order. I mean, listen, if you've listened to this show for a long time and I haven't convinced you that all of that is happening, I don't know what to tell you. But if you understand that all of that is happening and you understand what that thing is and what it means for your life, the lives of your children, the lives of your grandchildren, the lives of your friends and family, the state of your country, the fact that America could cease to exist, not only as a country, but as an ideal, then you should also agree that is not a future anyone can tolerate. There is no use for assuming that we are destined for the worst possible outcome when we are not there yet. These situations are fixable and it's up to us to fix them. And in order to pursue the fixing of this situation, you actually do have to think there's a point in doing it. It is a much safer position to be a doubter and a skeptic because your argument based on observable material reality as it exists now is defensible and it is irrefutable right now. But the reality right now is not going to be the reality in the future. The reality in the future is up to us to participate in building. And truthfully, what is the alternative? Just take the black pill, go back to quote unquote normal life, join the commies, put the mask on, prepare to get vaxxed forever, convince yourself that a vaccine ID that also contains your social credit score and your environmental, social and governance score and your central bank digital currency. Those are all just fine. We can make do. Oh, we'll still be free, sort of. We'll still be free, sort of. And sort of free, I mean, you know, you could argue that 10 years ago, we were only sort of free too. And 20 years ago, maybe we were a little more free, but we were still only sort of free 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty good, but we were still only sort of free. We can never be fully, fully free. So let's just accept a gradual descent into permanent human slavery. What are the options? That is the pessimist option. That is the black pillars option. But that option at its base is nihilism. It is a lack of faith in the future. It is a lack of faith in the people around you. It is a lack of faith in anything good. Certainly a lack of faith in God, I would think. I mean, I'm not, I haven't spent my life as a religious man. I was an atheist, as I've described in this podcast. But that is that belief at bottom. There's nothing. There's no point in any of this. I have the material reality that I depend on. I form all of my beliefs and my conclusions. My actions are all based in the material reality. There is nothing beyond the material reality. So I might as well enjoy what I can as much as I can until my little trip is over. And hey, good luck, everybody. And the point here is, is that either position you take, right? If you're spreading the false hope or if you are a pure doubter and skeptic who thinks Durham was all for nothing, it's all over, nothing's ever going to happen. Same thing with election fraud, same thing with everything else. Either one of those positions requires an act of faith to ascribe to the belief because neither of those positions, while defensible, are conclusive. Now, my belief that the election will be fully known as 
having been stolen and that every effort will be made to overturn that. And, you know, whether that ends with Trump being elected again in 2024 or whether it happens earlier, I'm open to those possibilities. Again, both positions are defensible. Neither one is conclusive based on material reality as it exists right now. No matter how long I argue that point and how much evidence I put behind it, it requires at the end an act of faith in order to believe that that is what's happening because it cannot be conclusively proven by the material reality as it exists right now. Likewise, the skeptic and doubter position that nothing is happening, that nothing will happen, and that this is all a grand ruse to cover up the Trump-Russia collusion hoax or grand ruse to steal our country by stealing the election. All of that requires an act of faith, too, that the prior pattern will continue despite the massive disruption, by the way. So in either case, there is ultimately an act of faith based on something that is defensible but cannot be proven in the bounds of our known material reality as it exists right now. So what I'm saying is, while one of those positions is quite valuable, it ultimately leads to apathy and then to nihilism, which is not to say those cautionary tales are not important. They are important and you should make them part of your perspective so you can understand where your personal belief might come up short in relation to the material reality that will come to be. It makes sense to maintain those doubts, but it does not make sense to embody them because ultimately they're just both expressions of faith in different things. And as defensible as their argument may be, I am going to bet on the continued awakening of people across the world and what I believe to be overwhelming evidence that the people across the world are waking up to the reality that has been hidden from them for a long time, and they are seizing back power. And you can call all of that hopium if you want. I believe it is realistic optimism, and I will prefer that every time. Materialistic pessimism and the idea that nothing can be done or nothing will be done. And just to add one more thought on the end of this, there are some people who are obsessed with the Durham thing. Part of that is a result of their interpretation of Q posts. And I have written extensively about what I think of the Q information phenomenon. It is all in the Substack, So I don't want to go back into it. But putting your faith in John Durham because of a Q post is ultimately an argument to authority that the Q posts are authoritative and that they can be used as a reference for belief. Now, if you believe that, that's just fine. That is not how I perceive it. Because even if Q is 100% real in the way people believe it to be, and on our side, there is still the element of people's interpretations of those posts. And what we end up with is another position that is defensible, but not conclusive. So I think it's important on that side to understand that putting all your faith in a man in John Durham is silly. That is grounding your faith in the material reality, by the way. And I imagine that's why religions encourage their followers not to put their faith in man. But at the same time, Durham doesn't become a joke just because it's focused on by people that follow Q. And that's one of the strangest attacks. Oh, that thing is what Q people believe. Therefore, it's dumb. That position's not defensible. And no one who has actually really looked into what Q is and what Q posts are would ever say that. When people say that, the first thing you should understand is that they do not have any perspective on the Q information phenomenon. So it is a mistake and argument to authority to say that because something was in a Q post, it is therefore true in the way you interpret the Q post. 
That's fallacy. Likewise, it's equally fallacious to assume that something is dumb or wrong or irrelevant because it was derived in some manner from Q posts. So to sum it all up, hey, everybody, chill out. The world is still spinning. Things keep progressing and they progress in our direction so consistently that finding little instances where the Q people are dumb or things didn't go our direction and then saying that that justifies the pessimistic, skeptical doubter viewpoint. That's just nonsense. Now, let's get a little more coverage of the decision itself and then other situations that have arisen since the decision yesterday. This is Andrew McCarthy writing for the New York Post. And McCarthy is pretty good about the legal stuff. And he's obviously followed all of the DOJ, John Durham, Trump, Russia collusion, all this stuff. He's very steeped in the material. He is also pretty much a never Trumper. And very safely in the just right of center, respectable conservative category. The headline, John Durham lost because he treated the FBI as a dupe rather than a Clinton collaborator. And I want to read that again, just because the framing of this headline is really interesting. And I'm going to come back to it. John Durham lost because he treated the FBI as a dupe rather than a Clinton collaborator. And what I want you to focus on is whether or not he did that by mistake. Was that an oversight or was it something else? What was the role of the FBI in the Russiagate probe in which special counsel John Durham has been tasked with getting to the bottom of the Trump-Russia collusion farce? That is the key question. If you don't get the Bureau's role right, you're apt to get the most consequential things wrong. Durham has banked his investigation on the premise that the FBI was a victim, an innocent dupe manipulated by the Wiley Clinton campaign. On Tuesday, this misplaced faith led to the acquittal of Clinton lawyer Michael Sussman. And so just in McCarthy's description right there, you can see he takes the position that this was a mistake or an oversight by John Durham. There is also evidence here that could lead you to believe that the harder position I was talking about before is relevant, right? If he did this to somehow provide cover for the FBI by portraying them as a victim, then that would lend credence to the idea that all of this is a cover up. The irony abounds. A Washington, D.C. jury found Sussman not guilty of making a false statement to the Bureau, even though Durham's team convincingly proved the falsity of the statement he made, namely that in purveying derogatory information about Donald Trump, Sussman was not representing any client when in fact he was representing the Hillary Clinton campaign. Moreover, although the acquittal will encourage Democrats and their legacy media allies in seeking to discredit Durham's probe, the law enforcement shenanigans uncovered by the trial illustrate that the probe is essential. Nevertheless, the probe will come to naught and accountability will remain a pipe dream unless Durham gets the FBI's role right. As I contended in Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency, the outrage of the Trump-Russia collusion farce is that the law enforcement and intelligence apparatus of the United States government was put in the service of partisan politics. First, to attempt to get Hillary Clinton elected president, and when that failed, to hamstring the Trump administration's capacity to govern. That is, what makes Russiagate a uniquely dangerous chapter in modern American history is the willful interference by powerful federal agencies in electoral politics. The real collusion was between the Clinton campaign and the Obama era executive branch, particularly, but by no means exclusively, the FBI. Durham proceeded on a different theory. The culprits by his lights are the Clinton campaign and its operatives. We are to see the FBI not as colluding with the Clinton campaign, but as victimized by the Clinton campaign. The false statement case against Sussman is one of three indictments Durham has brought in more than three years of conducting his probe. In each one, the defendant is accused of duping the FBI, not collaborating with the FBI. 
in an effort to portray Trump as a Kremlin asset. Besides Sussman, Durham has charged Igor Danchenko, the principal source for the notoriously bogus Steele dossier, with lying to the Bureau about his own sources of information. Remarkably, Danchenko had previously been suspected by the FBI of being a Russian agent, and the Bureau did not even bother to interview him until it had used his information without endeavoring to verify it in applying under oath for FISA court surveillance warrants. His information was credited because it fit the predisposition of FBI headquarters that Trump was a cat's paw of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Durham's other prosecution was of Kevin Kleinsmith, an FBI lawyer. Kleinsmith falsified information to conceal that Trump campaign advisor Carter Page, whom the FBI portrayed as a Russian spy, had actually been informing the CIA about his Russia contacts. To most of us, that would strongly suggest that the FBI had lost its professional detachment when it came to suspicions about Trump. Yet even here, Durham sees the FBI as the victim. Kleinsmith was charged not with defrauding the FISA court on behalf of the FBI, but of lying to the FBI. And he was permitted to plead guilty despite implausibly maintaining that neither he nor the Bureau intended to deceive anyone. And then there's Sussman. The proof at trial demonstrated that what he gave the FBI was more a cover story than a false statement. If Sussman had openly identified himself as a Clinton operative peddling opposition research, the Bureau would have been seen as collaborating with the campaign by using the oppo as the pretext for an investigation. So Sussman instead pretended that he was just a good citizen, a former Justice Department official who was bringing the FBI information out of a patriotic concern for national security, not partisan motives. The FBI knew exactly who Sussman was. He'd represented the DNC when its servers were hacked and blocked the FBI from conducting its own forensic investigation. And you got to remember, the DNC servers being hacked is not a pure fact. It is not necessarily true that the servers were hacked. That information very likely came from somewhere else. When Sussman purveyed supposed evidence of a Trump-Russia communications back channel, the Bureau knew full well that it was getting political information from a partisan source. The evidence at trial showed that FBI headquarters concealed Sussman's identity from the Bureau's own investigating agents. The FBI's investigation opening document falsely claimed that the information had come not from Sussman, but from the Justice Department. And even when the information proved bogus, FBI headquarters directed that the agents open a full-blown counterintelligence investigation anyway. Trump's obvious innocence made no difference. You can't prove a false statements charge unless it is established that the investigating agency was fooled by the lie. In Sussman's trial, the proof showed that the cover story did not fool the FBI. It enabled the FBI which was second only to the Clinton campaign in its commitment to pursuing the Trump-Russia collusion tale. And so let's go back to the headline. Durham treated the FBI as a dupe. Did he do that on purpose or was it an oversight, a mistake? If it is a mistake, then the doubters and the skeptics have another mark in their column. Durham is either not the star prosecutor he's made out to be, or he's part of a cover-up operation. Both of those would be reasonable conclusions. But what if a guilty verdict wasn't the ultimate goal for Durham in this trial? He didn't contest the jurors. He didn't contest the court where the case would be tried. Why not? Well, maybe he's in on it. Maybe he's incompetent. Or maybe the guilty verdict was not his goal. And the guilty verdict not being his goal is, in fact, a defensible position. That's all I'm arguing. I'm not arguing that it's definitely true. I'm arguing that it is defensible in the same way that the other claims are defensible. Because, again, the goal is proving the joint venture conspiracy. And this trial may have made significant gains toward reaching that goal. The guilty or not guilty verdict for Michael Sussman is irrelevant in some sense in the pursuit of that larger goal. And I want to mention one more thing, and maybe this leads you in either direction, but there were multiple agents, multiple people who wrote in their notes that Sussman was not there on behalf of a client, 
that has always struck me as a strange note to make in the same way that notes during a meeting with Obama show that Joe Biden was the person who brought up the Logan Act in regard to how they might get Michael Flynn. And what I mean is that in both instances, these contemporaneous handwritten notes are creating an evidentiary trail in case anyone looks back on this in the future. In some way, it is the FBI creating proof that their use of Sussman's information is not their fault. It's Sussman's fault because he didn't represent that he was there on behalf of a client. Now, if you were actually as the FBI part of this collusion, this joint venture conspiracy, that's something you might do. Because as we can see, the point in all of these massive joint venture conspiracies, like the election fraud, for instance, is to shift accountability away from yourself or the organization you represent at all times so that each individual member believes it's other people's fault what went wrong, which would make each individual case harder to prove while potentially simultaneously making the ultimate proof of the joint venture conspiracy more obvious and more based in the evidence with the idea that no one is ever going to try to prosecute the entire joint venture conspiracy. And then let's throw in this little tidbit. The jury forewoman from the Sussman trial was reported in the Washington Times as having said, I don't think it should have been prosecuted. There are bigger things that affect the nation than a possible lie to the FBI. And you would think that people would be naturally inclined to shy away from saying things so preposterous and stupid. But apparently this is what we can expect from Washington, D.C. juries. Washington, D.C. votes like 95% Democrat. It is the home of the uniparty swamp. It is the home of the global communist order in America. And the jury's forewoman is essentially saying that she doesn't think this crime matters. So she's not going to decide that Michael Sussman is guilty of lying to the FBI, despite all the evidence that clearly shows he lied to the FBI. But let's wrap things up with this. The Sussman verdict comes down. People react and overreact. People get upset. The left wing and all the communists on Twitter begin rejoicing. Keith Olbermann says that because Sussman is not guilty, that means that Trump actually did collude with Russia. And he's, you know, screaming and yelling and dropping F-bombs as always because Keith Olbermann is a deranged lunatic. But after that initial emotional reaction, that is when the analysis begins. That's when the understanding begins and people begin to discuss alternate interpretations of the situation of this new reality. Michael Sussman, not guilty. That's a new reality. Now we need to analyze and try to understand that new reality and what it means in the context of the past, the present and the future. Or we throw our hands up and say nothing is ever happening. Maybe we can finally achieve justice in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. But the day progressed. And then on Tucker Carlson's show last night, Matt Gates came on to deliver some really, really interesting new information. And I'm just going to play the clip. It's about three minutes long. Here you go. Hillary Clinton donors acquitted a lawyer called Michael Sussman of lying to the FBI. Now, who's Michael Sussman? Sussman is a former partner at the law firm Perkins Coy, the biggest Democratic firm, the firm that represented Hillary Clinton's campaign. And in that capacity at Perkins Coy, Sussman laundered false information about the Trump campaign to the FBI. So a pretty tight relationship between Sussman and the FBI. We're learning tonight much more about the connection between the FBI and Sussman's former law firm, Perkins Coy. Congressman Matt Gates and Jim Jordan have just received a letter from Perkins Coy's attorneys. 
This show can report exclusively that in that letter, Perkins Coy admits the FBI has maintained a, quote, secure work environment within Perkins Coy offices for more than a decade, going back to 2012. What? According to the letter, quote, Perkins Coy is responsible to the FBI for maintaining the secure work environment. That workspace, whatever it is, is still in operation today. Ever heard of anything like this? No one we spoke to has. Matt Gates is the man who found this. He's, of course, a member of Congress from the state of Florida. He joins us tonight. Congressman, thanks so much for coming on. Um, this is bizarre. Tell us what it is and what you think it means. We got a report from a whistleblower that we confirmed through multiple admissions, including this letter, showing that the Democrat Party's law firm, the law firm that received $42 million from the Democratic Party has this co-located workspace that they operate in concert with the FBI. Why in the world would that be the case? Why would Christopher Ray allow it to continue? Then you also have to ask yourself, why within the last 12 months was the person on behalf of Perkins Coy operating that, that worksite, Michael Sussman himself? And we heard through this trial that you just referenced that the FBI believed Michael Sussman was lying to them in 2017 when he was shuttling false information about Trump into the intelligence process. And now we learned for four years after that lie, Michael Sussman was in fact operating this secure work environment. So what reason would there be for that? And what leverage would the Perkins law firm have over the FBI given this work they're doing together? So I, I know that this story, to the extent they can, will be ignored by the media. And to the extent they can ignore it, they'll say, well, this is just normal. There are good reasons for this. So you're an attorney. You serve with a lot of other attorneys. This is not normal, correct? I have spoken to former federal prosecutors on the Judiciary Committee and throughout the country, and I have not heard any describe a relationship like this with a private law firm, and especially because Michael Sussman was an election lawyer. Why in the world would an election lawyer be operating this facility in this way? And our concern is that politically motivated dirt was being converted into politically motivated investigations. That's why Jim Jordan and I are making demands for answers on Christopher Ray immediately. And it's, all, it's my hope, certainly, that we shut this facility down. The Democratic Party shouldn't have this special access, special portal to the FBI, especially knowing what we do now, that they were often trying to take this opposition research and then use that for law enforcement and counterintelligence purposes. So the Sussman verdict comes out. He's not guilty. And six or seven hours later, Matt Gates shows up on Tucker Carlson and reveals that the FBI has had a quote unquote secure workspace at Perkins Coie for a decade. And of course, throughout the entire time, that the Trump-Russia collusion hoax was being concocted and executed and then enforced through media and elsewhere. But Perkins Coie is also Mark Elias's law firm. Mark Elias is the Democrats' lawfare conductor for election fraud all around the country. He has been one of the people most singularly responsible for all of the lawsuits that have been used to delay the process of examining the 2020 election. The guy that was just found not guilty is the same guy operating that secure workspace, overseeing that secure workspace for the FBI at his private law firm. That is the law firm of the DNC. And then the question becomes, is this a coincidence did John Durham know about the secure workspace before he tried Michael Sussman? You'd have to assume that he did, right? Could he have just missed this? Are we supposed to believe that Durham is incompetent? Maybe he is, right? He made the mistake of viewing the FBI as just simply a bunch of dupes, right? Or is that not what happened? Again, Durham has suggested in his own words, in his own filings, that he is in pursuit of proving a joint venture conspiracy. You wouldn't come out 
and file something so provocative in federal court if you didn't think you could back it up. So if he thinks he can back up the claim of a joint venture conspiracy, you'd think that he'd studied the elements of that conspiracy pretty thoroughly before he comes out with something like that. And if he was doing that, then there's a very strong chance he knew about the FBI's secure workspace at Perkins Coie. So how in the world are we just hearing of it now? And are we to believe that Michael Sussman lying to the FBI is the only problem that Michael Sussman has? It clearly isn't. So is this a coincidence or is something bigger going on? Tucker mentioned the media is probably going to ignore this or they're going to try to say that this is the normal course of things. This is just how business is done in Washington, D.C. Turn away. The mainstream media hasn't covered this at all yet, which usually means either they think they can ignore it and they'll be proven wrong about that, or they're still trying to figure out what spin they can actually put on this story so that it'll become not a big deal and won't implicate them in any other way. And that seems to be an awfully difficult project for them to successfully complete while they're busy saying that the Trump-Russia collusion hoax was actually real and that Hillary didn't do anything and the fact that Sussman's not guilty is proof of that. So are these all disparate, separate incidents, all of them that we can pick out and name the Klein-Smith sentencing, the Sussman verdict, the sheer power and corruption on display, knowing that the FBI had a secure workspace within the DNC's own personal private attorney's office. If we just focus on those things, then all of them are evidence toward the case that the doubters and the skeptics are making. And then they would say that this new revelation is just a coincidence. The timing is just a coincidence. It's more proof of the corruption but the timing is just a coincidence. You shouldn't take anything away from that. But to suggest something is a coincidence requires the same act of faith required by saying it isn't. And that's something that everybody has to judge for themselves. Believe one, believe the other, believe both, believe neither. That's for everyone to discern for themselves. But what matters is where it leads you and what it says about what you are ultimately pursuing. The pursuit of truth and justice and a rebirth of the American way, that's not some small project. But I would argue it's a worthwhile one. In fact, maybe it's the most worthwhile one. But the solution isn't to adopt false hope either. The solution is to accept the material reality as it builds in our understanding and remain open to the possibilities you can't rule out. So the pessimism and the blackpilling may be valid on some level, but they're ultimately useless and they lead to only one place. And that's the worst place. Big thank you to everyone who has signed up for paid subscriptions on the Substack. As I have said a few times, I will be going to that model only for at least the initial release of the podcast. I'll probably put it out on other channels a day or two later, but that's coming. So thank you to everyone who has already jumped on board to follow the show, to get to the merch sites, donation sites, anything else, go to Linktree and find I'm your moderator. They have a weird link. It's basically L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash I'm your moderator, and you will find everywhere this podcast and I have a presence online and in social media. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. 
If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!